I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. My hand won't stop bleeding. The letters cut into the back of my palm must presumably still be there, beneath the napkin rag, beneath the slick of wet blood and dry blood. But I can't see them, and the pain has become something more universal, an ache of confusion in my hand and head and stomach. I collapse into the gutter in a kind of sitting position, my hair still wet and dangling over my face, my nostrils still stinking of the fish market, and I retch. I'm still there when the ambulance comes for me. I don't remember the journey. All at once I'm horizontal, gazing up at the ambulance doors as they swing open before my toes, and then the gurney is rattling down onto the cobblestones, swinging back in towards the darkened buildings. I get a split-second glimpse of a skew, golden and shining, beneath corniced rooftops. That's something, I think, or murmur, or hallucinate. That's really something. I've ended up in the nice part of town, 
The very modern sign over the very dilapidated stone entrance reads, Hospital of the Blessed St. Bartholomew. Not somewhere I've ever been before. I'm wheeled into a wardroom and left there to stare up at the ceiling. It's the kind of freakishly gentle space that's been carefully decorated and arranged to have a calming and therapeutic effect on inpatients. The walls are a very precise shade of soft violet. The paintings are all watercolours, featuring bridges over rippling, whirling tides. A small corkboard discreetly advertises softball tournaments and bereavement services. The only effect of the room, as far as I can see, is to give all 12 of us inpatients, lying in our own private agonies and moaning and sweating, the collective sense that we are somehow too fleshy and messy and painful to be allowed to remain in a space as soothing as this. In the morning, the nurses come for me. They are neither firm nor gentle, but somehow give the sense of an unstoppable, besieging tide, moving with such smooth, gliding certainty across the floor that you find yourself powerless to resist. Dressed in mint-green scrubs, their hair shaven monastically back, both men and women wear a knowing look of superiority upon their faces. I am allowed to urinate, or perhaps I should say that I am urinated, milked like cattle, a passive witness to my own ablutions. My teeth are brushed. I am fed mango slices and chaff from a miniature cereal box. Next, my wound is undressed. The raw flesh, spiked with bloody hairs, stings as it's exposed to the air of the ward. I'm encouraged to hold it aloft, as if presenting it to be kissed. Then the nurses part, and a doctor is standing before me. I have the vague sense of a kind of higher predator, something existing in the food chain of the hospital above the nurses, with round thick spectacles and a beaming smile and a face that's as curiously blank as a surgical mask, overhanging a long white coat with black trim. One of the nurses, as if appointing herself the spokeswoman for the group, offers, Nasty cut on his hand? Burn unit a voice says aloud from behind the mask of a face. The nurse replies uncertainly, Doctor, we think it might be a cut rather than a burn. The doctor keeps grinning, but there's a sudden ripple of fear from amongst the nurses, and the one who's spoken up flinches back as if she's been stung. Burn unit, she repeats. You're right, definitely, burn unit. And a moment later the others follow suit nodding nervously to each other like starlings, echoing the refrain, Burn unit. Burn unit. My fate has been decided. And even as I attempt to mount a feeble protest, the nurses are already gathering around me, unfurling their rolls of gauze, one of them winding it out across my hand, over and over, crossing my arm, moving up towards my shoulder, even as a second party works their way up from my toes along my naked legs, and a third detachment comes from my throat and head and face, rolling the gauze out, thickening with every pass across my body. I am permitted a slit for my mouth, 
a single breathable gap in the bandages, and just one strip of the thinner gauze is passed over my eyes, allowing me somewhat to see. The rest of me is bound up, thick and stiff beneath the gauze, my limbs stretching out, my back and neck corrected and straightened. As the nurses stand back to admire me, I feel a little like a doll or a mannequin that has been dressed in new clothes, strangely shrunken and somehow removed from the situation, as if they've placed me up upon a shelf. Every movement is hard like this. Every muscle strains against its wrappings and lulls me into stillness. They load me up onto the gurney once more, and I'm taken to the burn unit. The burn unit is, of course, on the 14th floor of the hospital. The nurses wheel me into a darkened ward, park the gurney up against a bed, and unceremoniously roll me over and over until I'm facing upwards once again upon the mattress. They attempt to tuck me in, but I'm awkward and oversized in my bandages, and so in the end they just drape the bedsheets over my torso, leaving my arms and legs still jutting out. Then they leave me there. The door swings shut. The door swings shut. It takes me some time for my eyes to adjust to the darkness of the ward, particularly beneath the confining veil of the gauze, but I immediately have the sense of the great length of the room stretching out before me. There's a breeze, too, suggesting windows. Rather less immediately, I begin to get the sense that there are a great number of people in this room, a multitude of silhouettes shifting their weight upon the beds and upon the floor. Soft violin music is playing from somewhere unseen. Who's the new meat? Someone calls out in a Scovian from the darkness. I don't know. Someone shouts back. I don't recognise his face. There's a certain amount of laughter. It doesn't sound entirely sympathetic. My eyes are improving. Gradually sitting upright in my bed and peering out. I have a better sense of who the people are surrounding me. Mannequins. Blank-faced, stiffly positioned mannequins, their arms and legs outstretched, their heads as white and empty as a doll's beneath the bandages. Every person in this room has been swaddled in gauze. Like me. As I stare, one such figure turns from the bed opposite me, awkwardly clambering down onto the floor on its stumps of outstretched arms and legs, and begins to crawl across the floor of the ward towards me, in absolute silence. For a split second it vanishes, and then suddenly there's a head at the foot of my bed, a blank white gauze face staring up at me. I don't scream, I'm not sure it's allowed. Then there's the distant sound of the elevator, a pleasant chime, and approaching footsteps. The figure before me flinches back, and then scuttles away across the floor of the ward on all fours, taking up position behind the door. It turns back to me, 
and raises a single bandaged arm to its bandaged face. I suspect it may be trying to raise a finger to its lips. The door swings open, and light floods the room. There's a nurse stood in the threshold, walking purposely forward towards me, clutching a batch of towels. Around me, a moment of absolute silence. And then someone yells, Alone! He's alone! The bandaged figure behind the door leaps forward, frantically grappling with the nurse, trying to use its stiff arms as both bludgeon and garrote. And as the nurse cries out in surprise, there are other ghostly white gauze-covered men and women lurching across the ward towards the action, hobbling on crutches or scurrying across the floor, kicking and stamping, venting their fury with shrill animal cries. I remain in my bed and watch. Once the nurse is no longer struggling or making any noise at all, the patients reconvene, forming into an orderly procession and shuffling the twitching body back past me, along the floor of the ward and around the corner, out of sight. There's the distant sound of a cupboard door closing. One patient stays behind, using the bandages on his feet to mop up the few traces of blood that are visible in the light of the doorway. Then he leaves as well, and everyone is back in their beds pretending to sleep. I remain upright on the mattress, waiting to see what happens next. A moment later, a voice comes floating out of the darkness. You should rest, it says. If the nurses come in force and they see you awake, they'll give you a little something to help you sleep. It isn't pleasant, I can tell you that. I don't quite move. Not just yet. I'm sorry you had to see that, the voice says. Relax. We aren't going to hurt you. You're one of us now, and we take care of our own here in the burn unit. Rest up. And when you wake, we can fill you in on how things are really run around here. I hesitate, and then lay myself down flat against the bed, resting the gauze shell of my head upon the pillow. Good, the voice says. My name is Jacoby. I'm in charge here. During the following day, and in the days to come, the patients of the burn unit begin to accept me into their fraternity. As all of us are wrapped in gauze, and none of us can see each other's lips move, our conversations tend to be collective and collaborative rather than any kind of dialogue. When we begin to reminisce about our favourite foods, or the friends and family we've left behind since coming to Askew, Different voices float gently up from beds on all sides of the wards, overlapping and merging with each other. Softshell crab, my god, if I ever have sushi again. He was sweet, such a sweet man, and, and before the fire we promised that we'd see each other on the bridge and do the thing, you know, the thing with the padlock. Five down. Does anyone know it? Eleven letters. The clue is mayhem, piping hot. It's an undisturbed kind of piece up here. The nurses come rarely. And when they do, they usually come in force, marching in through the ward doors like a phalanx. 
with a grinning doctor at their head who arrives at a bed and peers down at one patient or another for a split second before announcing, simply, cured. And invariably that poor man or woman begins to tremble, shaking their stiffed bandaged limbs and trying to wriggle away, insisting that they are not ready yet, that there's still so much healing to be done, and then the nurses fall upon the patient, peeling back the gauze layer by layer, their fingers flurrying on every side, until there's a naked human in their grasp, sobbing and struggling as they're placed onto a gurney and drawn back away through the ward doors, never to be seen again. I can feel the impotent anger from the beds all around me whenever this occurs. My comrades shifting on their mattresses and almost not quite rising to show their defiance and protect the nurse's victim. But when the patient is lifted from their bandages, fresh and healed like a moth from a chrysalis, I can feel that anger turn to something like pity and revulsion. No matter what happens next, the victim, once unwrapped, will never be one of our faceless order again. Aside from that, we're rarely bothered. And for the first time since I arrived in Askew, I begin to feel... Relaxed is not the word. I begin to feel comfortable. My bed remains warm and soft, no matter how many nights I sleep in it. The company remains amicable, and the conversation is just varied enough. There's a dumbwaiter at the far end of the ward room that sends up a fresh meal every hour upon the hour. Sometimes breakfast, sometimes lunch, never in any kind of order. It's always delicious, in a mushy, oversalted school dinner sort of way. Whenever the food arrives, Jacoby nominates the patient whose turn it is to eat. Nobody ever questions his decision. A number of us have suggested that whoever serves the food into the dumbwaiter is a secret ally of ours, somewhere in the hospital, someone who's sympathetic to our cause and is ensuring that we continue to receive food no matter how badly we misbehave. Jacoby tends to say, and I agree with him, that it's more likely the dumbwaiter is simply some machination of the blessed St. Bartholomew, stuck in its own steady, soothing rhythm, uninterrupted by human action, unbothered by anything outside of itself. Jacoby says a lot of things. This place is a paradise, he tells me, his soft voice emanating from one of the beds around me. It's safe, it's stable, and we're cared for. If it wasn't for the bloody doctors and nurses trying to drag us back out, the Blessed St. B would be a perfect place for all of us to hole up and enjoy the rest of our days. What do they do, I ask him, to the patients they cure? I mean, where do they take them? Jacoby barks with laughter. Where do you think, he says. They give them back their clothes and toss them back into a skew. Well, we say that if being cured means going back out into that damn city, then staying uncured is the healthiest state we can be in. That's why we resist. The small, defiant resistance of the burn unit is conducted through acts of both aggression and self-mortification. Sometimes it's the patients who harm themselves, peeling back their own scabs or tugging open their own stitches to disrupt the healing process 
and send the nurses scurrying for morphine and a mop. Sometimes it's the nurses who suffer, whenever any of them is foolish enough to step into the ward by themselves and find themselves being viciously beaten down in a sea of bandaged fists. I tell Jacobi that this seems like a battle that can't be won, that the blessed St. Bartholomew will always produce more lumbering nurses, more bespectacled, grinning, black-coated doctors, that its industry of healing cannot simply be halted. He just laughs. We have an ace in the hole, he says. Someday soon, I might even show it to you. Jacoby's promise comes true later that week, when I help capture a doctor who's foolishly strayed into the burn unit alone. This has never happened before, as far as I know, and as the crutches rise and fall, spattered with blood over the man's twitching fingers and crumpled spine, there's a real feeling of shock as well as elation amongst us, a frisson of what-happens-next excitement and anxiety flickering like electricity through the air between us. I don't contribute much, admittedly, just kicking anxiously with my bandaged foot a couple of times into the doctor's ribcage, but my friends move to either side to give me space, and that's a nice comradely sort of feeling, and Jacoby notices it, because I feel his bandaged stump of a hand pat against my back, and his soft voice tells me, help us carry him. We can't carry him, precisely, not without working fingers but we propel the doctor along the smooth tiled floor with our stumps of hands and feet until we reach the fire exit. A few of us go ahead, crawling like beetles, surrounding the main procession like a kind of low, insectoid honour guard. The unconscious doctor rolls and bounces down the staircase, his head thumping off every step until we reach the floor beneath us and turn a corner. This floor's empty, Jacoby whispers into my ear as we bang through the double doors into a darkened corridor. They had some outbreak here years ago and never opened it up again. So the sickness was still lingering in the air here. Even the doctors don't come through. Well, we say that if we grow sicker, that's all the better for us. The further we are from being well, the safer we'll be. I don't entirely agree with his logic here, but it would seem uncomradely to break away now, and so I keep walking in step with the rest of them, down through the empty hall, shuffling the unconscious doctor ahead of us. Then we're walking down a second industrial set of steps, and through a thick steel door, and into the warmth of a vaulted room. Most of this place is lost in shadows. The far wall, however is furiously lit in crimson and gold by the fires of a colossal rusted boiler, its griddled door blasting prison bar silhouettes onto the cracked tiles beneath it. We gather nervously in the light, a small delegation of swaddled, faceless figures, unable to check each other's expressions for signs of confidence or of fear. Jacoby's voice, coming from one of us, or perhaps from all of us, Echoes through the room. Not cured. And then all at once we're rushing towards the boiler, lifting the black iron pokers that have been laid out invitingly before it, grasping the handles in our swaddled palms, 
and driving their ends into the depths of the infernal heat until the metal warps and turns ashen orange. The doctor lies upon the floor beneath us, mostly compliant and babbling softly to himself, and it's only when our brands sear against his face and the skin of his chest beneath his torn shirt and coat, twisting the flesh, mortifying, changing, it's only then that he remembers again to scream. It's a little like turning marshmallows over a campfire as children. Each of us gathered around the doctor, jabbing our pokers into his skin until it boils and blackens and alters, searching for a square of unblemished flesh that hasn't yet been changed, perfecting our art as we go. And then Jacoby's voice cries out, Enough! And we step back from the steaming, squealing doctor, with something like collective dissatisfaction at a project that will never quite be finished. We come... Jacoby intones, and I have the sudden peculiar sense that he is no longer speaking to any one of us, but to something else, something that's with us in the furnace room. We come bearing sickness to feed sickness, wounds to heal, the injured to make you whole. And we all repeat, sickness to feed sickness, wounds to heal, the injured to make you whole. Quietly and thoughtlessly, all of us have shuffled back towards the steps and the door, leaving the maimed doctor writhing, alone and abandoned on the tiles. The darkness moves. And something enormous shifts forwards, something fleshy and wrinkled with the folds of a dozen different half-naked bodies, rolling forward like a colossal pale millipede beneath the combined balance of a dozen different hands and feet. My friends from the burn unit are chanting, Graft, graft, graft. I take a step back. I am gaping, I think, beneath the bandages. I wish I could see that the others were gaping as well. The thing is huge, almost spherical. The bodies making up its component parts have no sense of unity to them. I can see the face of a softly moaning nurse, someone I recognise from my arrival, half swallowed into the very height of its mass, besides a pair of protruding pink feet and a single grasping hand, and as it rolls forward across the floor towards us, top becomes bottom, and I am staring into a different set of horrid, wounded faces. It must be blind. It has no eyes, no mouth, aside from those of the victims making up its flesh. Some feet have shoes, some hands are lacking fingers. The graft rolls forward, and as it reaches the doctor, it dips, its hands gathering him up, absorbing him face first into its mass, until his screams are muffled, and his legs and arms are feebly kicking, his shirt and coat tearing under the pressure to reveal new flesh that conjoins with the greater mass of the colossal creature. He'll learn to be cooperative, Jacoby says, from somewhere amongst us. He'll have to, if he wants to feed. I almost ask, what is it? But that seems like a question that's both hopelessly obtuse and impossible to answer in the face of such a thing. So I correct myself to, what is it for? 
The graft is composed of sickness, Jacobi replies calmly. We bring the doctors and nurses down here. We inject them with a nasty virus, or we break them in some imaginative new way, and we add them to the greater whole. The graft, now that it's fed, seems a little lethargic, even disjointed in its movements, dancing back and forth across the floor on its multiple hands and feet. When we take the hospital, Jackby says, the graft will lead the charge. This is something they can't cure, can't stick a band-aid on and declare it well, because the sicker it grows, the stronger it becomes. He turns back to the crowd and declares in a voice that demands applause. And if worst comes to worst, and the battle is lost, we'll join with it, and gladly too. Because so long as we're unhealed, they can't ever make us leave. There's a ragged cheer from amongst the assembled patients. My feelings of comradeship have, in the past five minutes, become somewhat diminished. I think I know that I will not be staying to watch Jacobi's revolution play out against the hospital. I will not watch his creature roam the corridors of the blessed St. Bartholomew. Nor will I, even as an ultimate act of desperation, allow myself to be absorbed into its fleshy, awful hole. If paradise exists, it is not guarded by a creature like this. I will wait until it's my turn to be examined and pronounced healthy and whole, and then I will leave the burn unit behind and head back into a skew, where at the very least I have an apartment to go back to and recordings to make. For now, though, I smile from behind my bandages and cheer along with the rest of them and chant the name of the graph more loudly than anyone else. Unfortunately, after the absorption of the Doctor, the Blessed St. Bartholomew seems to cotton on to the fact that something is wrong. Perhaps it was willing to accept the sacrifice of its worker insects, but bridles at the atrocity committed against its higher tier of soldiers. The doctors and nurses keep coming. There's no end to them. Their visits to the burn unit become more frequent and more obviously militarised, Half a dozen nurses piling in at once around a single doctor, all of them falling upon a chosen bed, pronouncing the patient cured, no matter if she slits her arm open with a dinner knife or tears her own scabs loose from her face, and they yank the bandages free and drag her from her bed, forcing her fresh clothes back onto her even as the blood spreads over her t-shirt. I can see from the window of the unit that there is a small but noticeable pile of bodies now littering the street outside the doors of the hospital. The discharged, I suppose you'd call them. Jacobi begins whispering that the time is coming when we will take the hospital for ourselves, seize control of every floor, find whoever's in charge of it all. He seems to have decided, apropos of nothing, that if we can only make it to the 21st floor, at the very top of the building, we'll encounter some kind of hospital director or senior administrator a higher level of being than either a doctor or a nurse, and if we can only put a stop to it, then the mechanisms of the Blessed St. Bartholomew will fail at last, and will finally be left to our own devices. The other patients in the burn unit no longer make conversation, 
or read out crossword clues. Instead, they mortify themselves, obsessively crouched over their own wounds in their own beds, finding new and inventive ways to make themselves unwell. Jacoby has mentioned to me in his friendliest voice that some of the others have been asking why I'm not doing the same. I think it's time I left. That night, in the dead of the night, I make my move before Jacoby can make his. I slip out of my bed, through the unit doors, as silently and as swiftly as I can upon the stumps of my legs. I hurry down the fire exit, carefully skirting the 13th floor, sliding in through the 12th floor's darkened corridor until I find a toilet and lock myself in. I have grown clumsy without the use of my fingers. It takes an agonisingly long time to even begin unwinding the stiff gauze from my hands, and my teeth strain and click painfully as I bite down, yanking the bandages free with my mouth, trying my best to avoid the safety pins. My left hand is only partially free of its bindings when my absence is audibly noticed in the burn unit. I can hear the slamming of doors from above, voices raised from the fire escape outside. They took David! And Jacoby's voice booming over it all. That's the last straw. Grab your crutches, friends. We're doing this tonight. I stay perfectly still in my locked toilet store, beneath a fragile partition door, listening to the footsteps hammer up and down the staircase. Let it all play out, I tell myself. Just let it all play out without you. When the noise seems to have settled down, I begin to unwind my bandages again. About five minutes later, the screaming begins from the thirteenth floor above me. Then the doors bang again, and I distinctly hear the awful chittering clatter of many hands and feet on the concrete all at once. A chorus of softly moaning voices passing right beside the wall, and then climbing the staircase. The graft is free, I can only assume. Someone is shrieking in a voice of absolute horror that makes me wince. It's loose, it's loose. Got Jacoby, oh God, it got Jacoby. Then the screaming begins on the 14th floor. I've entirely freed one arm, and I'm just working my way along the other, when I hear the fire doors thud once more, and footsteps rattle, and more distantly, perhaps on the 15th or 16th floor, the screaming begins again. The graft is exploring the corridors of the Blessed St. Bartholomew. I begin to yank the bandages off my face, working quicklier and more urgently now with my stiff, pale hands, the blood surging back along my fingers as I move. Next, my legs and feet. People keep pounding up and down the stairwell outside the toilet, shrieking at the tops of their voices. I do my best to ignore it. The gauze pinches and stings, and my skin feels peculiar now against the open air, but at long last I'm free, and I step back out from the toilet stall, gazing at my own bewildered, bloodless face in the mirror. 
I'm still in the hospital robe, but at least my friends from the burn unit should no longer be able to recognise me for one of their own. I wait at the doorway for a second, but the stairwell seems to have gone quiet, and so I step out, glancing first down to the floor below, and then up to the floor above. This is a poor choice. The graft is standing in silence at the top of the stairwell on the 14th floor. It's considerably larger than the last time I saw it. Its flesh has been expanded upon with new bodies, some wrapped in bandages, others naked but for the ragged hospital gowns. It has no eyes of its own, of course, but I am quite certain that it's looking down at me. We watch each other for a split second, and then I turn and run. Barefoot, pattering down the staircase, two steps at a time, listening to the awful slap, slap, slap of its many hands and feet as it rolls and careens down the stairs after me, bouncing off the walls, and the closer it gets, the more certain I am that I can hear my friends from the burn unit, Jacoby's soft voice amongst them, calling out for me from within the folds of its flesh. David. David. We can cure you, David. I fling myself over the banister, praying that I land on my feet on the stairwell below, expecting to hear the snap of my ankle, or to feel my knee buckle beneath me. But then I am still running, and suddenly I've run out of stairs, and I push through the ground floor of the blessed St. Bartholomew, as the graft's hands and feet scrabble behind me, and I'm dashing through the reception, out through the sliding doors, into the rain and the cold of a skew, my bare feet slapping against the cobblestones, my gown whirling in the night breeze laughing at how good the air feels on my skin, how good the rain feels upon my cheeks, not looking back, never looking back again. It does not surprise me to read, the following morning, that there's been a fire at the Blessed St. Bartholomew Hospital in the northern heights of the city. Apparently, the blaze spread from a furnace room on the 13th floor and was carried upwards, consuming the burn unit and everything in its path. The surviving doctors and nurses are treating the injured as best as they can. Their work, the article says, must go on. I toss the newspaper to one side, head into my little apartment kitchen, and see about making myself some breakfast. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.